Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 23rd, 2021, as all too often on this show, COVID is dominating the headlines today. Um, the FDA has granted full approval of the Pfizer vaccine, which I think is good news for most, most of us anyway. But otherwise, the news isn't particularly encouraging. Deaths today in the United States are, are up over a thousand. That's more than a 95% rise over a 14-day period. Um, this is from last month. Um, experts are now calling COVID the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Last year, U.S. deaths topped 3 million, the first time ever in the, in the history of the country. Um, and we've had a number of shows about uh, increasing mortality rates and the crisis, perhaps, of mortality, especially amongst the American working class. Uh, Angus Deaton was on the show uh, last year, the winner of the Nobel Prize, the Princeton Economists, talking about how the flaws in contemporary capitalism are fatal, quite literally, for the American working class. Uh, a couple of months ago, I had the health expert and political activist Peter Sterling on the show, um, suggesting that America's lack of basic support is shortening lives. So the news seems to be bleak, but not according to my guest today. Uh, Sergey Young is an investor, um, a longevity uh, um, uh, activist of, of one kind or another, and he's the author of a new book right out today, The Science and Technology of Growing Old. Um, Sergey, lovely to have you, uh, direct <laughs> from New York, looking as youthful as ever, appropriately called Sergey Young. Uh, how, how would you respond to these rising death rates, the fact that 3 million Americans died last year? Uh, how would you respond to Deaton's um, work on uh, uh, Deaton's work on uh, the, the crisis of the American working class and the work of people like Peter Sterling. They're all pessimists, I guess. You're no. not. Uh, what would um, be your response? Well, I'm, I'm more balanced on that. And there's two perspectives here. So one, we have the most inefficient and uh, the most expensive healthcare system in the world here in the U.S., so U.S. spends 18% of its GDP on healthcare, and pre-COVID, the average lifespan in U.S. has been decreasing for three hours out of five. So that's that's a really bad news. And if you compare U.S. to some other countries like U.K., they spend 8%, and they live uh, much higher in in average lifespan terms. Um, or Singapore, which spends 5% of its GDP and has much more efficient healthcare system, uh, which is actually competing with, you know, for top one place in the world in terms of the average lifespan and healthspan together with Japan. So we clearly have a problem here. Um, while I'm very pessimistic about the state of affairs and, uh, and how we define and how we run healthcare system here uh, on, on a number of ethical dimensions, uh, I actually use 
the response that U.S. and the world managed to give to um, COVID as a positive example, how change can look like in the healthcare. So we can, I mean, if this is of interest, Andrew, we can discuss like in, in what particular way COVID was instrumental in, in pushing the change through the system, which has not been the case for the last decades. Uh, introduce yourself to, to, to my audience, Sergey. Um, in your bio and on your, in your book, you, you say, my goal is to lift to 200 and to find an affordable way for everyone to do the same. We are on the brink of a, a longevity revolution with new scientific discoveries and exciting technological advances now making it possible to reverse aging and treat previously incurable diseases. How are you associated right. with this movement? Are you an investor, a believer, or someone who's simply going to be the first person to live to 200? Yeah, I'm, I'm not interested in longevity for myself. So even if I die in the age of 70 or 80, whatever the average lifespan is, but I'll, I'll manage to create or contribute to creation of affordable and accessible, completely new technology-based version of healthcare, you know, I'll be very happy. So you know, this 200 years is, is my communication tool. I need to catch attention to feed people like what exactly needs to be done today on many levels, on the government level, corporation level, on the individual level, for us to take back control and responsibility for our own health. So, you know, like living to 200 today is completely irresponsible promise because uh, the maximum lifespan on Earth is still at 122 years. We 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 go and we we are coming you know closer to this sound barrier of the lifespan, but we still haven't been able to break it. Um, but that, who I am, you know, I'm investor. And where are you originally I'm, from, Sergey? Yeah, I'm originally. You can tell from my accent, I'm originally from Russia. I spend most of my time in London, and I do invest a lot in the U.S. Um, so, and I thought when I got longevity virus, as I uh, always say, I thought if I would like to change the space, if I would like to support entrepreneurs and scientists who wants to make a change in healthcare, I need to support, support them with, with the funding. And I quickly raised $100 million longevity vision fund. While for you and me and for our audience, it's a lot of money. In financial industry terms, it's, it's, it's extremely small fund. Right, and um, you make investments in areas like 4D molecular therapeutics, eco yeah, so, exoimaging, yeah, freenome. So you're, exactly. you're on the cutting edge of this new technology. Exactly. So if, if you look at the book, I call it the near horizon of longevity innovation. So I do believe that in 5, 10, 15 years from now, we're going to have extremely wide access to completely new technologies like gene editing and gene therapy, uh, organ regeneration and longevity in the pill. We're going to have completely new class of drugs which addresses aging at its core rather than individual diseases like we have today. But before we reach that, it's, it's important to stay on longevity bridge. So uh, preserving your health and mental and physical one in, um, in a good condition for the next 5, 10, 15 years is a priority for all of us. And there's so yes, many things um, that we can do. You, you talk about five non-negotiables, both in a yeah. number of media interviews I've seen and in your book. What are the core, what you call non-negotiables? It's a very Silicon Valley investor term for um, growing young, to borrow yeah. your language. 
Okay, remember, we need to stick, you know, on longevity bridge for another, what, 5, 10, 15 years. So while they might sound boring, well, this is exactly what we can do today. And five things, I'll be very quick, and Andrew, feel free to um, ask for more details is, is, uh, if needed. So number one, and when I have 30 seconds on longevity, I address only this. The, the date of the your annual health screening is the most important date uh, within the year for you, for all of us. Uh, cancer, well, let's just use cancer example. Uh, cancer is not a case of death as it was 20 or 40 years ago. Right now, if you if you manage to do early diagnostic of cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and neurodegenerative diseases, and these are like 90% of deaths that um, we have after age, after we turn uh, 50, uh, your recovery rates goes up from 2030 to 90 or even 100%. So it's, it's okay. extremely um, important. I, I, I take this point, and I, I don't think yeah. anyone's going to argue with you. It's not really surprising. Yeah. But you, we began this conversation by you observing that the American healthcare system, to put it politely, is fucked. So yeah. uh, don't we need to address the healthcare system first before we worry about annual uh, tests when more and more Americans aren't able to afford healthcare and are struggling to keep up with their healthcare payments? Uh, yeah, look, obviously we should. Um, I just don't feel I have a moral right to uh, criticize and, uh, you know, try moral to right change. Moral right to criticize what? Yeah, U.S. healthcare system and kind of trying yeah. to change okay. it. Well, wait, Mike, okay, so I, I take that point. So so your first non-negotiable is an annual checkup, which uh, right. is, is, is certainly uh, something that, um, is a very sensible suggestion. What else, Sergey? Yeah, so second is don't die stupid or I call it passive longevity. Uh, be mindful of the choices that you make. Like tobacco smoking is minus 10 years from your life. Not always using seat belts is minus two years from your life. Riding motorcycle in comparison to driving the car is increase your mortality risk by 17 times, one seven from the accidents. So, so that's... So Right. So what would what would Marlon Brando respond? We're not going to have a lot of fun. We can't smoke. <laughs> we can't ride Bosa cycles. Can we have can we still have sex and eat a lot? Uh, yes. Yes, we can. I mean, if this is protected sex and uh, protected, uh, yeah. right? nobody wants protected yeah. sex, do they, Sergey? Yeah, look, I couldn't really speak. This is not my area of expertise. Okay, probably, well, let's let's uh, move on then. So, <laughs> so, so, so we take. So, so, so I take your point. Uh, we need to be careful about what we do. Don't ride motorcycles. Don't smack. Don't yeah. smoke tobacco. I su I assume alcohol, illegal drugs, all these things are off the table if you want to live long. Yeah, I mean, one or two glasses of uh, wine is fine in the end of the week, but like not every day. Although the scientists now tell us that even wine causes cancer. So uh, one or two glasses a week rather than a day is probably sensible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Towards the end of the week, yeah. It's one or two glasses uh, a week, yeah. Uh, just like in your, in, in your home uh, country, Russia, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we are full of stereotypes about U.S., about Russia, about Europe as well. Well, so, I did some research on Russia, yeah. and Russia mm -hmm. is even worse than the United States. Mortality hikes. Um, uh, Ru Russia has, um, uh, Russia has a, a mortality crisis, according to one uh, Rand Corporation um, white paper. So, but, but anyway, let's, let's move on to the third uh, 
The third non-negotiable, yeah. Sergey. Yeah. Uh, the third one is about your diet. And there's a lot of disagreement in scientific community what actually extends your life today. But there is one agreement. Decreasing the calorie, your calorie intake, like the number of calories that you consume every day by 15 to 25%, actually extends your lifespan by three, five, seven years. Isn't this again, though, a, a, a privilege of the upper class of the coasts in America? Most people can't really. They can't afford to reduce their calories. They don't have access to high quality uh, no, I, 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 I do think it's it's stereotyping. So if you look at the study, I'll just look at the recent study. So if the family change its uh, food purchasing uh, focus on vegetables, I mean, you don't need to become vegetarian, right? You don't need to be religious right. about this whole thing. Your household budget on food decreased by $1,000 to 950 to be precise. So buying vegetables from supermarkets and and you know, cooking at home this is just a sensible even cheaper way to be healthy okay so we we change how we eat we change how we live we we change yeah. how we go to the doctor what about the last two the non-negotiable yeah so number four is um physical activity and um we are we we're very binary about physical activity in our life and our mindset so one is I'm either like running marathon or becoming Iron Man or Iron Woman, or I'm sitting at home and, and that's it. I, I'm doing nothing. So there's something in between. There's just use your wearable, like whatever the wearable you want to use, uh, and do a lot of walking. Like 10,000 steps a day is two-thirds of your physical activity agenda. And you can integrate walking in, in a lot of activities in your life. And this is where I think uh, we need a lot of improvement in the uh, U.S., so exercise, none of these are particularly, as you say, as you acknowledge, none of these are particularly surprising or, or, oh, yeah, or this controversial. Is, yeah. So, and what's the fifth yeah. one? Yeah, and the fifth one is a peace of mind. So every time we talk about uh, health, people tend to talk about physical health, but mental health is very important. So having your mind in a peaceful uh, state is extremely important. And for me, it's three things. One is sleep. Sleep is extremely important for our recovery and our health and longevity. I have a rule, eight hours in the bed, uh, seven hours of sleep. Um, number two is decreasing your What do you do with the other hour, Sergey? Uh, well, I am happy father of four kids, so I, I, my kids take a lot of, t a lot of my okay. time. Yeah, I'm running an investment fund. I'm supporting entrepreneurs. No, no, uh, I'm saying what do you do with the other sleep? hour in bed when you're not sleeping? Ah, okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Um, after I'm 49, so after turning 40 or 45, when aging processes start to accelerate in our body, your sleep pattern is actually changed quite a lot. So it takes you more time to fall asleep. Uh, you need to have you, you need to spend more time in the bed when you uh, waking up, and uh, you waking up um, during the night as well. Well, that's all good advice uh, from uh, Sergey Young's "The Science and Technology of Growing Old." Your book. Sergey comes with uh, a foreword by Peter Diamantis yeah. and Ray Kurzweil. Ray Kurzweil, in particular, is very much involved with the longevity movement. He's known as a as a, a popper of pills. He thinks he can live forever. Uh, Diamantis calls himself a data driven optimist. Do you think that your movement, the longevity movement, does a good job in presenting itself? Because 
people like Kurzweil and Diamantis sometimes appear as if they're parodies of arrogant, out-of-touch, wealthy Silicon Valley investors who have no real understanding of how the world works outside their own uh, multi-millionaire and billionaire bubbles. Okay, well, I don't know how to respond to that, Andrew, but look, <clears throat> the paradigm behind your question is that there's there should be like a similar, there's a lot of similarities in the people on Earth. I do believe this world need to have Peter Diamantis, need to have Ray Kurzweil, need to have Sergey Young. If, if this world will be full of these people, if yeah, we're going to be in trouble, but yeah, I, I do believe that the development of this world come from differences of opinion, difference of the view, difference in aspiration, and difference in assessment of opportunity and risk. So uh, do we need to have this kind of guys on Earth? Yes. Um, would we be in trouble if you know all of us will share the same mentality like Peter and, and Ray? Uh, yes, we will be in trouble. Um, we also had, an, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work, Cass Sunstein, one of the world's leading behavioral economists, on the show recently. He's the co-author with Richard Thaler, who, wrote, who, who won the Nobel Prize for Economics of Nudge, uh, which is uh, the subtitle, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Your book seems to suggest that most of the... Most of the the way to, to live to 150 or 200 is through self-discipline and self-management. But what should the role of government be, um, uh, uh, Sergey, in this? If, if yeah. there are ways of, of nudging people to live longer, to mm -hmm. have better health, to, to, to eat better, to yeah. sleep better, to exercise better, particularly with all our devices, should we be using them? Yeah. So, uh, great question. And, you know, obviously the main part of the book is about technologies which will come and we will be available to us in the next 5, 10, 15 years, right? The five longevity buckets that we discuss is like how we stay on longevity bridge. Coming back to your question, role of the government, I think it's threefold. One is recognizing the technological nature of the change and disruption, uh, which, um, which is coming to healthcare. The change in the healthcare will come not from old players doing new things. The change in the healthcare will come from completely new players, more technological ones, uh, completely disrupting. So we're going to see much more preventive, data-driven, technology-based version of healthcare. And like every second company that we're investing in, decreasing the cost of particular treatment or particular intervention or solving particular disease by 10, 20, not percent, but times. When you talk, we invest in well, affordable on devices. Uh, yeah. I, I, I take your point, but we've heard this time and time again from mm -hmm. Silicon Valley yeah. visionaries like yourself. We heard it about media. We heard about the benefits of democratizing media. We heard about the e information ecosystem. We've heard about cryptocurrency. And in every yeah. single revolution, <clears throat> firstly, it's created chaos. Secondly, it's often resulted in the reverse of what it's claimed. And secondly, it's exaggerated inequality. Why should we believe that this new technology, which you write about in your book, and I, and I think you're right, is, is profound, is disruptive, <laughs> is going to be any different. Yeah, I like, Andrew, how you make me responsible for crypto, for media revolution, and a lot of uh, different processes happening um, in the world. So we'll just come back to your question on longevity technology. So affordable ultrasound devices that we invested in cost 50, 50 times less 
than ultrasound device today that we have in the hospital next door. So that's fact number one. Fact number two, uh, colon cancer test, which uses your blood test, right, to identify the risk of the colon cancer. And this is the most dangerous cancer because the other way to test it is colonoscopy, which you do every, what, five years? Yeah. Um, so it's uh, anywhere between 150 and $200 rather than five or 10 times more that you would pay for colonoscopy. Uh, or um, organ regeneration technology that we investing in to help people who are waiting for uh, donor liver. Uh, right now they pay six to $800,000 for uh, liver transplantation. And, and there are 117,000 American people in, in on the waiting list to, re, to waiting for their donor uh, organ, mostly liver and heart. Um, and uh, the company that we invested in decreased the cost of it by factor of 50, five zero, again, 50 times cheaper. So that's, uh, this is, how technology work or even think about yeah i'm not a big fan of big tech right because of the you know obviously like almost monopolistic nature of the platform that they build both in us and globally but like think about apple apple watches device uh can do electrocardiogram can detect five different types of your um uh problem with your hard work um it can take an oxygen um, measuring oxygen in your blood and it, you know if you kind of fall down on the street it can call call an ambulance for you so apple watch alone saved a lot of lives without actually you know putting doctor between you and and the gadget would gadgets or technology alone solve our healthcare problems no but is it a huge enabler of the positive change to democratize uh, access to healthcare uh, yes, I think it is. I mean, in, in my world and in my dreams, um, uh, access to healthcare and the technological, uh, technologically driven and database version of healthcare should be for free. It should be like universal basic income or universal basic service that we should offer to you know people in U.S. all around the world. I know it sounds idealistic for you. Yeah, it's idealistic because we've... I mean, I, I hope you're right. I mean, it, but we, we heard that about media. Media became free in a sense, but of course, it's become increasingly expensive. But let's let's move on. Let's say your revolution is successful. Yeah. You ask, are you ready to live to 150? So the narratives of our lives change. Suddenly, middle age, old age, uh, everything changes. I had uh, Richard Leider on the show. Uh, recently, he wrote a wonderful book about becoming wise as we become older. How would you expect if your revolution actually happens, if we are indeed going to live to 150 or 200 in the next 50 to 100 years, how will that change our sense of, 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 of our life's narrative and of wisdom and even the idea of youth and old age? Yeah. So great question. And um, we started to discuss that uh, a little bit um, when you ask um, how our life paradigm uh, should change um, in a way. I mean, all these social constructs that we have, constructs that we have today in this society, like uh, career, uh, marriage, um, full time work and retirement, they all been developed 100 years ago or centuries ago. Uh, for the world where the average lifespan was 35 years. Imagine that. So right now we live in 75 years and we're going to be living more and more. So I do believe that the 
the social contracts constructs that we're using today needs to change, like career. Can I have as many careers as decades in my life? Or what about marriage? Um, so two-thirds of the marriages go through divorce stage in the first five or seven years, uh, depending on the, on the country that you're looking at. Um, or this whole concept of you know, full-time work and then you know, immediate retirement. This is too binary for today's world. Two most dangerous years in your life is actually year of your birth and year of your retirement. Because when people retire from their full-time job, they lose the sense of you know, social realization and, and opportunity to contribute to society at kind of major extent. Uh, so we need to revisit this as well. As, as I say in, um, in the book, in the chapter called Morality of Immortality, I, I do think in, in 20 years from now, the biggest obstacles for us living longer is not going to be science, it's not going to be technology. It's going to be ethics and regulation. We have created technology to extend our lives, but we still haven't created lives that we want to extend. And this is a much bigger problem than you know, introducing these beautiful technologies that we invest in. in. Yeah, and, and, and that issue, which you deal with in an interesting way in the book, was, of course, addressed 100 years ago in Aldous Huxley's dystopian Brave New World. Yeah. It's been addressed by many other science fictional writers. What's your, what's your um, suggestion for addressing this? I mean, uh, Huxley believed that a, um, a technocratic society where people would live, in a sense, forever, um, and would be dependent on technology was a dystopia. Are you fearful of that? Does it worry you? Yeah, look, I'm waiting. I, in the book, I'd call the um, I'd call it far horizon of longevity innovation. And this is the world and technology which, which technologies which will be available to us in 25 to 50 years from now. And I'm actually waiting for this with combination of excitement and fear, and actually social implication and our inability to manage ourselves in in you know today terms and and moreover when technology uh, going to be more and more prevailing and going to be more powerful is is one of my biggest fears do i have a solution to that um well not really andrew uh, i do believe this it's 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 a collective wisdom that we need to engage but the, we need to start this conversation today not in 25 years from now it's going to be too late i'm investor i'm technologist and i i you know, alone, I couldn't really you know, do a job of changing our society to the extent that we finally can create a life that we um, we are comfortable with um, extending radically. Uh, Sergey, do you think it's a coincidence that you and Diamantis and Kurzweil and many other the, the, the figures, the prominent figures in the longevity movement, are male? Um, here we have a difference, uh, a chart from the WHO, difference between female and male life expectancy. Women always live longer. They seem to yeah. be wiser in some ways, perhaps Absolutely. genetically or perhaps culturally or perhaps a mix in terms of aging. Um, what can we, we, you and I as men, yeah. learn yeah. from women about growing young? Yeah, oh, this is great. That's a great question. In fact, I'm, you know, one of my thinking, one of my ideas for the second book is uh, is to write a book about longevity for women and women health. So just right now, in in some of the like health studies that we have, as uh, white males are doing um, 
uh, you know, studies and trials on the group of wild males. This is, uh, uh, this is the basis for uh, consideration and scientific thinking that uh, we still have in this world. So what can we learn? It's obviously one of this is important of genetics. Uh, women have a different genetic setup, which actually supports um, uh, their longer living. Uh, second is a different hormonal setup. Third is different societal uh, setup as well. Uh, females are responsible for 80 to 90% of health of health related decision for the community and for the family. So that's just a bigger sense of responsibility. Um, what else? And uh, funny enough, because of their hormonal setup, uh, women take, uh, tend to take less risky decisions uh, in a good way. Well, that's why, uh, remember, right in the beginning, you know, we were talking about passive longevity. This, is, this chapter is for men. I mean, they're the one driving motorcycles, taking uh, some you know, risky decisions uh, in their life. Yeah, well, that's true, by the way. Yeah, thinking too much, it will not bring you uh, the peace of mind. While, you know, women have this you know, amazing ability to strike a balance between, the, you know, some global problems and the problems that they need to solve for uh, her and uh, people around her. We had uh, Lee McIntyre on the show uh, last week, uh, how to talk to a science denier. He's one of the, um, he's one of the people who has been very critical of people who deny science. Is there, um, does that concern you? And are, are there more science deniers, do you think, amongst men than there are about uh, 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 in the female population? Or is that across the board? What, what do you make of the science denial movement? Does it worry you? Um, what I would say that the state of the science that we have today is also is, uh, is, um, is a huge issue for me as well. You know, I've seen the, um, I've seen the facts that in some of the cases, um, the same experiment will produce completely different or almost the opposite, uh, results in different academic institutions. And, and this is concerning. That means that, you know, some of the scientific findings are not that scientific overall. And if, if you speak to scientists, uh, then, like, uh, what's their currency? Uh, their currency is publications, uh, getting grants. And I do believe that the system that we put in place with, you know, funding science a, um, promotes short-termism, not trying to solve global issues, but like do have something short-term and um, uh, produce a completely different motivation that we, we would be required from uh, the state of science, which would you know lead us to scientific, uh, significant scientific breakthroughs. So that's concern for me as well. Sergey, let's end where we all end, at least for the moment. Uh, death. Uh, Bob Dylan, of course, wrote the great song, Forever Young. Uh, we're never forever young. I don't think you're even suggesting that. Uh, of one, of, uh, one of the other great musicians of the last 25 years, Leonard Cohen, his last uh, album, You Want It Darker, these were the last lyrics I think he wrote, or certainly the last lyrics he sang on a record. If you are the dealer, I'm out of the game. If you're the healer, it means I'm broken and lame. If thine is the glory, then mine must be the shame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. That was his. Uh, his that was his exit from from the stage of life. Uh, Sergey, 
in this world where we live to 150, how will we rethink the idea of death? Yeah, I think, well, I don't know to what extent you prepared to hear that, but um, in a few decades from now, we'll have more optionality in terms of the death. And in today's society, it's called suicide. What do you mean more optionality? You mean we yeah, won't well, die? Well, yeah, what I'm saying that every five to 10 years, you will have an option and you will need to make a decision whether you extend in your life or not. So we'll never reach the point of immortality, but we'll always have access to some life extension uh, treatments, therapies, interventions. And then it's going to be up to us if we want to live longer or we just want to finish our journey on this planet. So, Sergey, what's the chances of us um, doing this interview again, not on August the 23rd, 2021, but 2121? Are we still, you and I, are we still going to be around? So, like, knowing what I know about longevity space, I do think that uh, you and I have good chances to live to 100 healthy and happy years. I do believe that opportunity to live to 150 or 200 years uh, it will will be available to kids or grandkids, but not to our generation. But that's okay. We shouldn't overestimate our our role and the place and process of evolution. Well, really a wonderful conversation. You've been a good sport, uh, Sergey Young. Are you ready to live to 150? I think we all are if we can live well, healthily and happily. His new book, The Science and Technology of Growing Old, is just out. A very good, interesting, provocative read. Sergey Young, we're going to have to have you back on the show. Maybe not in 2121, but certainly in the not-too-distant future. And uh, I will guess that you will look as young now as you as 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 young then as you do now. Congratulations on living so well, so healthily, and trying to trying to encourage all the rest of us to do so. Sergey Young. Honor, keep well. Talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.